Welcome to Rising. We have a simply outstanding show for you all today. Brianna Joy Gray is back. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. It's always a pleasure to be here. What is happening on our show this lovely Tuesday morning? Well, we will get into the backlash against WNBA star Brittany Griner's release from Russia with our Rising panel. Plus, a new round of the Twitter files is out. We'll tell you everything you need to know about that. But first, breaking news this morning, the SEC has charged disgraced FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried with defrauding investors. In court filings, the SEC alleges Bankman-Fried, quote, orchestrated a massive years-long fraud, diverting billions of dollars from the trading platform's customer funds for his own personal benefit and to help grow his crypto empire, including by using customers' funds to make investments in political political donations. The news this morning comes after Bankman-Fried was arrested in the Bahamas yesterday. The attorney general for the Bahamas confirmed in a statement that the arrest came after U.S. officials notified the Bahamas of their intent to extradite Bankman-Fried. According to Bloomberg, in remarks prepared for a U.S. House hearing that Bankman-Fried was supposed to appear at today, he offered this. I would like to start by formally stating under the oath, I effed up. <laughs> yeah, understatement of the century. Sam Bankman-Fried, freed no longer. Okay, so you say it's the understatement of the century, but there was something weird happening where the sheer confidence that he was exuding, the fact that he was doing all of these interviews, the fact that he kept saying that he didn't think, I think it was in the Deal Book interview at the New York Times uh, last week, that he just really didn't think that he was going to be arrested. He saw no reason. Yeah. He was asked during that interview, you know, are you in the Bahamas and not traveling because you're afraid of what will happen if you'll travel? And he kind of shrugged it off. There was something that I felt akin to surprise, even though there should be nothing surprising about this outcome whatsoever. Yeah, it's not surprising. And actually, there was a lot of, to be fair, uh, conservatives uh, expressing the idea that, oh, he's not going down. That's what he bought with his donations to the media and to Democrats, although, and we, we know that he also donated Republicans, with his political connections. He's too, yeah, he's too big to fail. He'll mm-hmm. indict the system. He's not going down. Um, I think Elon Musk tweeted that he's going to be protected by Democrats because he gave money to them. Um, I never thought any of that. I thought absolutely he is going down. He will go to prison probably for a very long time uh, because he because the fraud looks pretty transparently obvious at this point. And also he keeps giving he keeps giving interviews about it. It's so easy. They're the investigators are just taking notes every time he opens his <laughs> mouth. They just, you know, another another uh, they, they flip the notebook. They start uh, they start recording more things he's saying. It's he is he's going to, he's going to prison. I mean, he deserves due process. You you don't want to talk too frankly about what uh, you know what's going to happen before a jury reaches a conclusion or a yeah. judge, which is absolutely how it should be. But um, yeah, he missed his window to go to Venezuela. And, in we fact, will say that. yesterday uh, people were pointing out that shortly, apparently before he was arrested, he was participating in a Twitter Spaces, which for the uninitiated and the uninitiated who don't spend all day on the internet is a kind of live kind of radio show call-in you can do and set up on Twitter, wherein uh, people were tweeting that he basically seemed to make a significant admission about this whole thing being a Ponzi scheme. After which he was immediately. Pulled off. It seemed like the the proverbial like cord was yanked, and the the conversation was ended. Or at least his participation in the conversation was ended. And people were saying, you know, was this the butt for? Was this the final mm-hmm. drop in the bucket that either caused his handlers to realize he shouldn't be doing these things anymore, or ultimately instigated the choice to go ahead and get cause him to be arrested? But honestly, it's hard to tell because he's given so many interviews right up to this point. He gave another one to uh, Puck that was very open um, and contained a lot of disclosures and seemed to, again, not show him in any kind of contrite or defensive position in the least. And, you know, 
the question is, has it all caught up to him, or is he still one step ahead somehow? I don't think he's one step ahead whatsoever. <laughs> I, I think he maybe thinks he is. Mm-hmm. It sounds like... Uh, it sounds like he thinks what he did was wrong because it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't understand the underlying fraudulent or criminal aspect of it, which gets confusing for people only because this is crypto and crypto is inherently a little confusing or it's it's intangible. It takes like an extra logical leap to understand exactly how it works. But what he's being accused of doing is actually not all that complicated or even unique to crypto mm-hmm. at all. He received funds for one thing, for FTX, and he used that money, he funneled that money into something else, Alameda, to make investments, to make bets, to make gambles that did not pay out. So he didn't have that money. So he couldn't return it to people through the other thing. And then he also did, which this has gotten less attention, but seems very important to me, he also paid people Mm -hmm. uh, with a token for FTX, which is essentially shares of the company, um, giving, paying employees, vendors, et cetera, but he knew that those shares were not worth anything right. because there were, the funds were not in right. that company. He had used them elsewhere. So right. that is also, seems to me, fraudulent. Right. We'll see what a court can prove. So that's very, all of those things could have been done without crypto. It, it's not, and it's fine for people to have less confidence in crypto or it's maybe it's less rec, uh, regulated or whatever, but the the... The the workings of the fraud are not actually unique to it, it's familiar. It's very familiar. Yeah, it really does. I mean, the more I look at this and the more I talk to people about it, it really does feel like the crypto of it all was what was hiding from from you know the, mm-hmm. the public. What was pretty obvious at at, the, at its core. There's nothing, as you say, novel, especially novel about this, which is partly why his media strategy has been so confounding to people. In this most recent uh, Puck interview from, I think, about a week ago, um, the interviewer asked him, you know, why are you talking to people like me? Both of your parents are law professors. Is this part of an incompetence defense? And this is something I think we've joked about before. Like, does he does he think by doing this oh shucks routine where I was just a poor, innocent young boy who didn't realize what was going yeah. on and, and, and behaving in a way that is, frankly, continuing to show the same recklessness that he showed in the administration of his company— setting himself up to say, I, I was genuinely ignorant and there's not the kind of um, malice aforethought that might be necessary right. to connect this to a fraud charge. But he's almost, it's slightly different what he's saying. He's not quite even saying that, that right, I was over my skis or, or, or I, I didn't know. He, he's making an argument that like, if it had worked out, mm-hmm. you would no one would have questioned it, mm-hmm. right? If I'd ended up with this pile of works, money yeah. that was twice as big as what I started with, yeah. and then I could give more money to the media and more to politicians, and more, and I could donate more to effective altruism to make you all, people all get off my back and keep writing glowing profiles about me as the white knight of this industry. Um, it, it, it was going to work out, except I kind of got screwed, and I, I did well, something's wrong. I didn't pay enough yeah. close attention to it, and then I had a rival come in and expose the whole thing. Right. And like, if that hadn't happened, it would have been fine, is what I'm hearing from him. But implicitly. that is what a Ponzi scheme is. <laughs> right. As long as there's more money coming in, the Ponzi scheme technically yeah. works. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? So, I'm not yeah. sure he understands because maybe he's like low-key a psychopath or something. <laughs> I'm not sure he understands the difference between him and like a normal Ponzi scheme person who it, it, probably very yeah. much understands exactly what they're doing. Is, it, it does feel when you listen I think to he has him, a level like of he self-delusion. sincerely believes, exactly. Yeah. He believes his own... Malarkey, yeah. to put it in the parlance of our oh, dear yeah. President Biden. <laughs> <laughs> it is incredible, though. Yeah. yeah. So we'll be uh, we'll definitely be paying more attention uh, to this one. So he, he's likely to be extradited, I think, sometime in the near future back to the states. 
And it, look, it's a shame to miss out on this hearing cycle. I think a lot of people were curious to see what he was going to say. And some conspiratorial minds say that maybe this is the point, that he's not making the disclosures today uh, in front of Congress that we uh, anticipated. But maybe U.S. attorneys will uh, will give him an ankle bracelet and send him to Capitol Hill, and they'll be there with their notepad listening to everything he says. Well, whatever the outcome, we'll be there to cover it. And Robbie, I'm looking forward to hearing what's on your radar coming up next. Robbie, what's on your radar today? Well, Brianna, affirmative action is, of course, in front of the Supreme Court this term. Students for Fair Admissions, a group that would like to end race-based admissions practices in higher education, has filed a lawsuit against Harvard University. And SCOTUS has already heard oral arguments in that case. Now, a recent report in The New York Times, which cites information in the lawsuit and then also interviews with Asian applicants and college advisors for elite universities, reaches a startling conclusion that I wanted to discuss on the show and should, I think, provoke considerable alarm about the racism wrought by Harvard's policies. That conclusion is that Asian teenagers are taught, implicitly and explicitly, to appear less Asian on their applications. This is from the New York Times piece, quote, in interviews, college admissions consultants spoke about trying to steer their Asian American clients away from so-called typically Asian activities, such as Chinese language school, piano and Indian classical instruments like the venue flute. They had other tips, too. Writing about your family's immigrant hardship stories is too basic and don't bother checking the race box on the common application unless you're Latino or black. Doing so may not hurt your chances of getting in. Won't help you either. One college admissions counselor said, it doesn't make me happy to tell ninth graders that there are musical instruments they shouldn't play or academic pursuits they shouldn't engage in because it's going to make them look bad. Joining us now to discuss all of this is Kenny Zhu, author of An Inconvenient Minority. Thanks for joining us, Kenny. Thanks for having me. So I saw you had a great interview uh, with my colleagues at Reason, Nick Gillespie and Zach Weissmuller the other day, and I wanted to bring you in to continue that conversation. I read this New York Times piece. Uh, it was just pretty, I, I think, alarming uh, for general audiences to learn um, what specifically Asian um, young people, applicants to elite universities, the kind of self, uh, self-censoring, self it's beyond that, Ch- you know, choosing their, what their activities are, what their interests in, really d- dis- almost disguising themselves in order to fool admissions counselors that, that I, I think you would argue are, you know, are, are looking to weed out people that they think for some reason are, are too similar, something of that nature. What's going on here? Yeah, well, let's be clear. You can't fool Harvard admissions officers because they have consulting companies that will take a look at every part of your background, whether you like it or not, they will evaluate you on your race. Whether you like it or not, you can put you can put the no race box, you can even put white, but they will look you up, they will find you, they will, because they're obsessed with this. And, and this, is, this, this is the reality of Harvard admissions. In, in, 19, in the 1970s, the Supreme Court allowed schools like Harvard to use race admissions and then reaffirmed it in 2003 at Bruder versus Bollinger. And the result of this is a culture at Harvard where race is the goal. Um, when race is allowed, race becomes the goal. That's just what happens. They say it's holistic admissions, but every part of their system, a D- Department of Justice investigation against Yale, for example, found race as a plus factor used four times in the admissions process from the first committee to the final committee. 
uh, uh, on evaluation. They will use race as a plus factor. They will give you a plus factor if you are, happen to be African-American and a minus factor if you happen to be Asian. And, and one other aspect of this that I wanted you to touch on uh, from reading the lawsuit and coverage of the lawsuit is the idea that Harvard and institutions like them want, um, they want their students to represent um, a, a sort of a, the sparse country idea. Can you talk about that? Well, we have to, you know, if we have someone from, I don't know, rural South Carolina, they, they have to embody what, you know, what we would want from an applicant from that place and how that would, that would work against applicants of all sorts of races, actually, who, who are not, who would not, you know, be for cultural or historical reasons, wouldn't be, have been considered from that place in, in a really backward looking way that would work against Asian applicants, but really all, all sorts of people who, who, who wouldn't fit a stereotype almost, like they're trying to reinforce a stereotype. Yeah, in my book, An Inconvenient Minority, I talk about Harvard's geographic diversity justification. So basically, Harvard comes up with this idea, which they might implement after the Supreme Court um, uh, uh, admonishes them in court on this race-based admissions, but they might implement this geographic diversity policy, which says, well, we want fewer kids from San Francisco and fewer kids from New York City, uh, and we want to get into the geographic diversity part, which is, of course, a proxy for race. Um, they, this is exactly what New York City did uh, under Mayor Bill de Blasio to get rid of Asians in the specialized high schools, which are the elite uh, public high schools in New York City. They said, we're going to target people by zip code, and we're going to allow a certain number of people from each zip code. And then the zip codes that, that they happened to discriminate against happened to be the majority Asian zip codes. But I'm sorry, wouldn't that also cause them to discriminate against all of the diverse people who tend to live in cities, including Latinos and African-Americans? The, the, the zip codes that you point to, places like New York, concentrated areas in the country, are notably more diverse. And when you look at maps of America, this is something that happens every election cycle. There are large swaths of the country that are much whiter, and there are political consequences for that, obviously, much redder, precisely because there's such a lack of geographical diversity outside of the cities. Yeah, it's not going to uh, be racial perfect. Racial diversity, rather. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, there's a reason why Harvard is defending the explicitly race-based part of their admission system. Is they want a more perfect um, admission system according to their race-based ideology. They have a, you know, a racial goal of getting a certain number of blacks and a certain number of Hispanics in school. The geographical diversity would make it harder for them to do that, but rest assured, they still have that goal. Well, Kenny, let me ask you this. When the affirmative action programs were ended in some of these UC schools, what you saw was a growth in the Asian population and a detraction in significantly the white population as well. And I think there's been a long history in the United States of America of various successful groups being kind of quoted out of universities historically, Jewish people in a lot of these Ivy League schools, and now Asian Americans. I will say that I've seen this firsthand in the hiring process. I've seen the kind of statements made about, you know, I don't know if I'm going to get along with this person, and I don't know if there's going to be a good cultural fit. And I think there's something really real there in the way that Asian Americans in particular have have to suffer the burden of, I think, what are as good aspirations to make sure that everyone has equal access to these educational systems. But my approach here would be to say the real problem is to have such a hierarchical education system where people feel so cutthroat and uh, about uh, and will go through anything, including getting thrown into jail, as we saw from a. Uh, Aunt Becky from uh, Full House, in order to get their kids into school, and I, I wonder what you have to, what you think about the kind of systemic failure here, or if you just want to be able to take advantage 
or, or what different kinds of students to be able to take advantage of a system that is already very hierarchical and keeps a vast majority of Americans boxed out point blank period. Well, what you say is true. There are different kinds of students, and that's why I'm skeptical of the claim that we can ever eliminate the cutthroat nature of this admissions process. Um, as long as there will be ambitious people or ambitious parents, there will always be a cutthroat culture. That's just the case. And unfortunately, Harvard actually justifies their discrimination in the name of eliminating cutthroat culture. Because here's what happens. Harvard selectively recruits from these private schools, elite private schools like Exeter, that they have relationships with. The purpose of these private schools is to make it easier on the rich parents uh, to say, you know, just because my kid goes to this private school, he has an in with Harvard and Yale. And so it is actually easier and it actually is less stressful for these private school kids because they know they're going to have a higher chance for admissions. You know what happens because of this system? It makes it harder on the Asian Americans and on the people of all races who are high achieving who don't have to have those ends. Well, and you're, you're kind of, yeah, uh, moving around another thing I wanted to ask you before we have to let you go, which is about, right, the tremendous advantage given to legacy um, admissions. Uh, and that, honest, I, I believe, will probably work against Asians in a, you know, de facto racist way, um, perhaps even more so than the race-based admissions. 36% um, of Harvard's class is legacy admissions. Yeah, yeah. So what do, you, what do you think about that whole system, whereby, you know, the scions of wealthy, influential, well-connected uh, alums, you know, get moved to the absolute front of the line? The solution that I've always advocated for is meritocracy, strict meritocracy in admissions. That means admissions based on grades, test scores, a personal essay that you can't cheat on, so hopefully one that you have to take in uh, you know, one sitting, um, teacher recommendations, things that are commonly agreed on in merit-based factors. I would even go as so far to say race-blind and name-blind. Uh, admissions officers are not allowed to look at your name. They're not allowed to look at your race. They're not allowed to look at your background. Just make the best presentation you can and win. Hmm. Kenny, I think that's I think that's very aspirational, but I think that part of the reason why folks have, some people, folks advocate for, let's say, putting more emphasis on the test because some of those other factors are not neutral. Teacher recommendations are highly susceptible to the same kind of biases I've observed against Asian Americans in the hiring co context, for instance. And people, you, you talked earlier about Asian Americans being d discouraged from, say, playing a violin or certain kind of stereotypical instruments. But the part of the push to push those uh, to play those kinds of instruments is because for years they were understood to give you such an advantage in the college application game, even though so many kids, the majority of kids, don't have families that can afford to give them lessons or to even give them SAT tutoring, which is something that I know up to my scores by many percentage points enabled me to get into Harvard. So what do you make about the balance between some of these factors actually undermining the idea of actual meritocracy and actually being a better map for these class issues? Because nobody wants to play violin because they actually like playing violin. Um, no, <laughs> well, the, as, a, as someone who had to play the uh, violin since she was five years old, I have to agree with that. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, no, I don't get me wrong. I know the squash parents. I know the parents that, you know, put their kid through squash so that they can get to Princeton at the age of six. But um, but no, I, people should be allowed to pursue whatever aspirations they have and not use it docked one way or the other against them. Uh, in terms of teacher recommendations, I believe in the power of choosing your teachers. But I, I do acknowledge that sometimes that works against you. Um, a lot of immigrant parents, they have no idea like how to teach, how to make their teachers, how to pick their teachers. Um, so I would be supportive of an even more constrained admission system where you're based more on objective merit-based factors. Mm. Well, Kenny, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you.
We'll have more rising right after this. Well, Twitter CEO Elon Musk was actually booed by a crowd in San Francisco on Sunday night after he was invited on stage by comedian Dave Chappelle at a comedy show. Let's watch. Always for the richest man in the world. Musk also shouted, I'm rich, B-I-T-C-H, to drawn out booze. <laughs> Musk suggested that the crowd who booed him were, quote, unhinged leftists. What do you now, make of that take, Robbie? Well, I should say, I do hear booing. I don't hear only booing. Yeah, and they said, There's like... booing and cheering. Yeah, so, you know, while this is all happening... Uh, Dave Chappelle, in an effort to kind of wrest control of the situation back to the people on stage, said something like, mixed, I, a lot of booze and cheers, I, I see. You know, he kind of was mm-hmm. narrating what was going on. So I don't think that it would be surprising for folks at a Dave Chappelle concert to like Elon Musk. In fact, I think why this was so notable is that people at a Dave Chappelle, Dave Chappelle who was kind of cast himself as counterculture and, you know, outside of politics and a truth teller and someone who was anti-woke, you know, you expect his audience to actually be more sympathetic to Elon Musk than the general population. That's why I think some folks who are trying to make the argument that this was a San Francisco crowd, this was woke scolds, et cetera, it doesn't necessarily make sense. No matter where this is, this is people who wanted to come see um, Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle is someone who, of course, has gotten a lot of controversy over the last few years for his stand-up routines that center on trans people. And... Afterward, Elon Musk took to the internet and did a series of tweets about wokeness and pronouns and trans people seemingly as a way to kind of save face. And it's just an interesting choice given that, again, this is an audience that at, at, at very least is tolerant of the kind of politics that, that Dave Chappelle has espoused about trans people. So pretending like this is some kind of like pro-trans woke folks that are booing you seems to be missing the point. Right. Uh, presumably, it's an audience of Chappelle-friendly people. Usually at his uh, performances, you have the audience laughing along with what he's saying. I mean, I think it goes to show you, like, Chappelle is a very competent performer. Right. He is really good at reading the room, yes. uh, the, capturing the room's energy, saying things. He can get away with saying things. Uh, well, because of the setting. He's, a, he's a telling truths, but through the lens of comedy. There's a satire element. That can be really hard to do. Yes. He's really good at it. He's, he's like the best in the, the world master. at it. Yes. So it's not surprising to me at all that, that anyone else like Elon doesn't handle that the same well, way. And also Elon has like 
made himself a more, he has raised his political salience. Like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 10 years ago, he was just, he was known for making electric cars. He would have been a left-coded person or, not, yes. or a progressive, yes. liberal-coded person. Now he's a very hard-right-coded person because of the choices he's made to intervene in the high-profile political battles and to be very, and, and this, this shouldn't be, this is not an insult to him. He has made this choice fully. He has committed, he said on the platform he now owns, he would like to elect Republicans, not Trump. He doesn't want to elect Trump, he would like to elect someone like DeSantis, and he helps people vote for Republicans. Yes. If that is your standpoint, this is a very political country, a very closely divided country. You're going to have a lot of people in this country who don't like you anymore yeah. if, if you're entering into the political fray. I mean, we get this all the time. We're, we're political talk show hosts. A lot of people don't like you. A lot of people don't right. like me, including among the people who so, are watching so, this right now. Sometimes, so it's about, just, sometimes out in the world and someone says, hey, I recognize you from Rising, and I have to judge from their tone whether this is a good recognizing or not recognizing, <laughs> and if I should flee or stay for a handshake. But look, other part to this that we should acknowledge is that there was uh, Dave Chappelle opened up basically, introduced him on uh, Elon Musk onto the stage, saying like this is the richest man in the world. And what was kind of interesting was that that didn't seem to land the way that Dave Chappelle, despite his expertise in reading a room and reading an audience thought it was going to land. So there was a time when Dave Chappelle was someone who we kind of admired for pointing out why people like Trump and 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 and, and explaining on the to an SNL liberal kind of an audience that there was something to this kind of um honest dishonesty, where mm-hmm. even if he was saying something that was kind of outrageous, the, his confidence in saying it, it had a truthiness quality to it, and he was willing to say true things about himself, including, hey, I'm a rich guy and I look out for rich people. And that was part of uh, why we like Dave Chappelle. There was this interesting, fearless kind of class analysis and all of it. That night on the stage, he opens with, hey, this is the richest man in the world. And when people don't love that fact, don't applaud that fact, he then criticizes the people booing and, and says, all the boos, it seems to me, are coming from the back, where the, the poor seats, the nosebleeds. Mm-hmm. And, and people online were pointing out that even those nosebleed tickets were something like $175, not exactly cheap. And so there did seem to also be this disconnect about you know, who the audience was. Is Dave Chappelle now too rich to be in touch with the people who made him famous? Well, I, I'm not at all willing to say that yet, because I still find him funny. Every time, The most recent thing was on SNL. I he was, was, he was I excellent was on SNL. Good. That's I think really that, that, why this was so disappointing. I know that that SNL clip was controversial in and of itself, and I don't know if we have time to get into mm-hmm. it. But he is very good at finding the line and writing it. He did not do that here tonight. And although I wouldn't expect Elon Musk to be able to command the stage and get out of that pickle, I did expect for Dave Chappelle maybe to be able to do more with what was given. And the fact that even he couldn't seem to quiet the booze and get the audience back on his side, I really does... Whatever you think about Elon Musk, I do think it says something true. No, it wasn't just booze, but it was mixed. It was mixed in an audience that should have been enthusiastic for Elon. Nobody's trying to deny that there were obviously some people there that love Elon. But to your point, if you're going to take a hard political position like Elon has, you're going to alienate half the country. Well, there's probably, I mean, there's probably some people who will cheer anti-wokeness but don't want to cheer rich billionaires. I mean, there's working class people who find what Chappelle has to say Absolutely. funny and don't and are not on board with uh, some of the kind of farthest progressivist language or stylistic choices being made by social sure, but, activists. But are on board but with are, the farthest progressivist right, stuff on, the on economic, economic policy. Stuff, yeah. and so, so lumping all those things together is not always right. how so it works. One other thing that we should mention is that, as I, as I said earlier, Elon seemed to go online after this and do a bunch of tweets about pronouns. He says, uh, I think, 
prosecute Fauci, prosecute slash Fauci are my pronouns. All of these things that seem to be kind of unrelated to what happened on stage, but felt kind of like emotionally space-saving moves. Yeah. He then my went pronouns on... are prosecute slash Fauci. <laughs> right. Am I wrong for laughing at that? That's between you and um, your loved ones. <laughs> to tweet two funny. tweets that he ultimately deleted, which yeah. for the very online, like Elon Musk, Elon Musk can ratio almost anybody. He's got a lot of support on Twitter. The fact that he felt pressure to delete these tweets spoke volumes about the level of pushback he was getting. Tweets? The tweets were, one, a major fight broke out in the audience just as I was about to talk, so I didn't get to say much. Mm-hmm. Sure, that's the reason you didn't get to say much, Elon Musk. It wasn't that you were wandering around on stage. And you guys should watch the full clip if you haven't. It's about 10 minutes of, of a lot of awkwardness on stage. The second tweet that he deleted was, technically, it was 90% cheers and 10% booze, except during quiet periods. But still, that's a lot of booze, which is a first for me in real life, frequent on Twitter. It's almost as if I've offended San Francisco's unhinged leftist, but nah. Yeah, this is very, if you're explaining, you're losing. Yeah, it's like Cope Harder. You know, and that's not me saying, but that that is the impression that it gave on the internet. And apparently it was the impression that he got as well because he actually deleted both of those tweets. Mm. Well, there it is. I don't know. Do you think this this could be the tide turning, but it could just be the first time? Tide turning. Well, obviously it is the tighter. It's people who are who were like you said, who liked him a lot for being left coded, who having for making these environmental cars. I saw people saying, "I'm canceling my order for Teslas." I mean, all of that is performative, well, and who cares yeah. about it? All those people leaving Twitter. Oh, I bet they're yeah, that's leaving in a real absurd. hurry. What, where are they going? What's the name of the of other course. one? Of course, but the, Post. Twitter's different from a car. A Twitter, Twitter. There's no comp competitor. There's yeah. other places you can get cars and yeah. even get electric cars. So that, that's not why I bring that up. It's just to say that, like, he he admits in this tweet that is now deleted that he has never really had to confront in real life this kind of negativity. And I think a lot of people who get affluent surround themselves by yes people and don't have constructive pushback. Whether or not you agree with his political positions, I think everybody, there's room for growth with respect to how they present themselves to the world. And I'm hopeful because I do hope that there are positive changes that come out of Twitter. I think that his investigations into the shadow banning and stuff is really important. I hope that he learns from this and focuses on the things that he is sincerely good at instead of, you know, I don't know, Taking a, a, a bite out of comedy. I mean, this is the downside of having things very neatly sorted politically. That eventually people who have an eclectic mix of views or there are some things about them, you could say, like, well, he's very pro-environmental friendly cars, but he also has some you know, anti-wokeness stuff, eventually you're either going to get sorted in one side or the other. Like, there's not as much fence straddling going on. So he's being neatly sorted over time as a conservative figure. Same thing happened to Joe Rogan, despite him being a Bernie Sanders person. But for example, I don't have an issue with Joe Joe Rogan. I might have disagree with things that he says. He's a human being. Same with Dave Chappelle. I find much of his comedy to be enjoyable. And I think, like I said, I loved his SNL performance the other night. It's not about that. I think a lot of people can exist in a world where they don't agree with what everybody says, but they still like who they are. I think what we saw that night was something a little bit different. They can, but they're facing relentless pressure to go one way or the other. What is the the upside? It's clear what the upside of Dave Chappelle is. He is a talented comedian. Mm -hmm. He's really funny, and he can be socially insightful. It's even clear what the upside of someone like Kanye West is. He's an amazing musician that people have loved for like 20 years now. Elon Musk as he's managing these failures or not this, not attaining the success that he thought he was going to a- a- obtain with um, the tunnels to nowhere and the, and, the, and the Twitter of it all and not necessarily making the reforms in the way that he had promised, 
um, getting rid of the panel of um, advisors who are supposed to be making some of these decisions about content moderation. Mm -hmm. All of these things that are, seem like a backward move instead what? of a forward one. Well, I think we're going to talk about. I think we're going to talk a little bit more about. Okay, so, I will so get let's into save that, that conversation. Just, just the point is that he is going to have to start to prove why people should applaud as opposed to boo when he's in these situations. And I encourage him to figure that out because I think that he could be a value add. In the words of Rick and Morty, your boos mean nothing. I've seen what makes you cheer. <laughs> All right. We'll have more rising for you after this. Well, according to CNN, Biden administration officials met virtually with Paul Whelan's sister, Elizabeth Whelan, to discuss next steps on the strategy to bring him home ahead of a planned high-level conversation between the United States and Russia. Whelan has been detained in Russia after being arrested in Moscow in 2018 and sentenced to 16 years in prison for espionage. The news comes amid backlash after the Biden White House was unable to secure his release despite bringing detained WNBA star Brittany Griner home last week in a prisoner swap for convicted Russian arms dealer Victor Boot. Let's listen to National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan answering Real Clear Politics reporter Philip Wegman's question about the trade the United States made with Russia to free Griner. I'm curious, does the administration consider Victor Boot to be a terrorist? Well, he's not uh, listed as a specially designated national. What we consider him to have been was a convicted criminal, convicted of arms trafficking and other crimes, um, to serve a sentence. Uh, he served 12 years in detention. He was set to be released uh, in 2029. And, of course, before we make any determination about whether to send somebody back as part of a deal to get an American home, we make a determination about the national security implications of that. We did that assessment in this case. We believe we can manage those challenges, but we will remain constantly vigilant against any threat that Victor Boot may pose to Americans, to the United States going forward. We also would just point out uh, that there is no shortage of arms traffickers and mercenaries in Russia who pose challenges and threats to the international order, to the United States and otherwise, and we are vigilant about that as well, which is why we have built, alongside our allies and partners, such a robust policy in dealing with the threats posed by Russia. Joining us now to discuss is former special assistant to President Biden and former press secretary to First Lady Jill Biden, Michael LaRosa, and founder of Red Renaissance Pack and radio talk show host, Kimberly Klasik. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. So, Kimberly, let's start with you. You know, why is this anything other than a kind of feel-good story about uh, a star, an American citizen being brought home after months of being incarcerated in Russia? Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of people that would say that it's not really a feel-good story if she had not been a celebrity. And I think that's where there's a lot of pushback, right? Because Paul Whelan, of course, there's not a whole lot of media sensation around his name uh, because he was a former Marine, because, you know, he was there on, he says, a tourist visit. And so a lot of people aren't really paying attention to that case. But I will say that this is kind of a bad deal when you look at it. I mean, they used to uh, refer to Victor Boot as the merchant of death. And apparently he tried to sell over 12 million dollars worth of weaponry here, uh, or not here, but to people that were attacking Americans across the world. And so he is a very dangerous guy. There was even a Nicolas Cage movie done after him. Uh, and so I don't Which think... Movie? So I don't know the name of okay. it, but if people are movie buffs, <laughs> Nicolas Cage actually played him in a movie. He had this uh, fleet of cargo ships. He would actually land in different countries, dropping off all these weapons. I mean, he's a very dangerous guy. And he tried to steal the U.S. Declaration of Independence. <laughs> no, that's, yeah. a, that's, a different, that's a different one. Um, 
yeah, look, right. I, so there are a couple uh, components of the conservative argument against this or issue with this that I, I think like run the gamut of how reasonable they are. Uh, yeah, the idea that we should make the trade because he's a more dangerous individual and like our generic don't negotiate with terrorist standpoint, or that this right. would encourage future kidnappings because they know, or you know, arrests of people under uh, bad conditions in Russia because they know they can extort something from us. That sounds reasonable to me enough. I am seeing some people on the right saying, "Well, they should have done this because Brittany Griner hates America," or so, which I don't. Which by that you mean she's not a Republican? As I, as I gather yeah. what they're saying, that that seems a little silly to me. No, I don't subscribe to that. You know, look. Everybody has their different views, and I understand that she had a different view, and that's, you know, that's something totally different, right? We have over, what, 60 people across the world right now that are being uh, obtained at, in other countries that we would love to bring home, and I think we should focus mm -hmm. on that, right? Not whether or not someone's a Republican or Democrat or how they feel in general about America. Mm -hmm. Well, Michael, what do you make of some of the pushback that has been happening around the situation? Yeah, I I think it's unfortunate that we're not celebrating and I'm, all of us aren't united in celebrating an American coming home. I think even the Whalen family suggested that and that while they are frustrated, obviously so, our hearts go out to them and the other families who have uh, family members still held hostage in Russia. Um, but what they did say was we should be celebrating the fact that the Biden administration did everything they could to get an American home. And that came from them. There's been a lot of you know, Monday morning quarterbacking um, from, you know, some in the media, some in the public, uh, some in Congress. But we need to trust the diplomats who are in the room. And as one Republican congressman from Texas said, Dan Crenshaw, this wasn't this wasn't a his or her proposition. This wasn't a pick him or pick her. Right. This was the deal in front of us. I I, I think the former president um President Trump tweeted that he had the opportunity to get Mr. Whalen out. He chose not to take that deal. That's something he has to explain to that family. Um, but the Whalen family, um, while frustrated, they understand the proposition, the choice that the administration was faced with. Right. And, and Michael, maybe you can re react to this. So uh, David Whelan, the brother of of, uh, of the uh, detained uh, individual, said former President Trump appears to have mentioned my brother Paul Whelan's wrongful detention more in the last 24 hours than he did in the two years of his presidency, in which Paul was held hostage by Russia. Uh, you know, the criticism there being this is really only a recent fixation uh, for Donald Trump. Of course. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, President Trump has openly bragged about his negotiating skills and ability to get a deal, uh, but that apparently was one that he couldn't reach, even with uh, his uh, uh, close friend, uh, Mr. Putin, who he likes to talk about having a close relationship with. So it's it's odd that he is. Uh, it's not odd, given the, the former president's tendency to weigh in on on, on events. But uh, yeah, I. I kind of agree with uh, Mr. Whalen's brother that even when Mr. Whalen was asking the former president, uh, asking the former president to even tweet to get him released, that not a finger was lifted and not a peep was said. Well, Kimberly, let me ask you this. Yeah. Because before the implication was that, you know, Brittany Griner was only getting this attention because she's a celebrity, which I think that there's legitimacy to people paying more attention to a celebrity than they would other people. Although, of course, there was a whole other discourse about how people weren't paying as much attention to her as they would if she were an NBA star as opposed to a WNBA star. But let's put that to the side for a second. The implication is that she is not actually 
you know, it's not a, an even trade given who Victor Boot is and how dangerous he is. And that somehow, uh, it, you know, that Whelan is a better person to be trying to negotiate for. But it's the implication that if Boot is so bad and Boot is so dangerous, that the swap should have been for Whelan, presuming that was a possibility, which it absolutely wasn't. But are people saying that, isn't there an inconsistency between saying that Boot is, in fact, too dangerous to be swapped for and shoehorning Whelan into this argument about Brittany Griner's release? Yeah, so you're absolutely correct in the fact that I, I do believe that Victor Boot is way too dangerous for the swap in general. And so I have to push back a little bit. In 2018, President Trump, along with National Security Advisor John Bolton, they actually talked about this deal between Paul Whelan and Victor Boot and they actually declined it because they said that Victor Boot was just too dangerous to be released. And so here we are now in 2022, and in the Biden administration, they have made this call uh, to do this swap, which, again, if you're looking at the debacle in Afghanistan and the withdrawal and just everything that we've been doing for in foreign countries lately, uh, that's a little bit scary. I hear Jake Sullivan saying that they're keeping a close eye on what's going on when it comes to Victor Boot and others that are threats to America. But, look, I don't feel so safe as it is. And so I don't understand why we made this call. President Trump has spoken about about Paul Whelan in the past, but again, they did not feel that this was a good deal in 2018, and I have to agree. Mm. I mean, what do you have to say to that, Michael? I mean, yeah, I mean, Mr. Boot was tried in the American system of justice as a criminal. Um, he's going to be released in six years, and that doesn't make him any more or any less dangerous six years from now or now. The question would be, is that the response? Is that the answer to, to refusing to bring home an American? because you want to wait six more years or Michael, this because was he's a, going to be any less dangerous in six years. This Michael, was the choice of diplomats. This was the choice our diplomats were confronted with. Again, Mr. Trump will have to explain that to the Whelan family and to the American people down the road. But this was the choice this administration faced. Uh, Michael, I have to push back uh, respectfully here because the DEA, they, they tried to get Victor Boot for months. It took us two and a half years to have him come and extradited back here to America to be tried because Russia was trying to hold on to him. This is a very dangerous individual. But he was tried in the American system of justice and his time was running out in six years. So should we what? still refuse to bring an American home? And, and I mean, I, I, that's a question that you're going to have to answer. The Republicans who are criticizing them are just going to have to answer this administration led and made the decision this was the choice they were going to make because we have an opportunity to bring home an American and we're not going to say no. Well, let's hope he doesn't do something in the next six years. Well, one other aspect of this, though, that I always think it's worth bringing up, you know, we're we're celebrating Brittany Griner getting brought back. Um, and, and the current administration is treating this as a win, even though there are all sorts of people incarcerated in our own country for very similar drug crimes. This is, you know, policy that spans Republican and Democratic administrations that the Biden administration has moved very, very slowly on the scheduling of various drugs, et cetera. So many people believe that um, that uh, myself included that you know, nonviolent, um, low-level drug offenders should be released anyway. And we're in condemning fact, Russia for having yeah. done this to Brittany Griner when we have people just like that. Including Victor Boot. He, I saw him do an interview where he was remarking on the racial composition of our criminal justice system mm. and the injustices that he observed. Of course, there are political reasons to want to draw attention yeah. to that from his perspective, but it doesn't make them any mm. less true. Well, Kimberly, Michael, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll have more Rising right after this.
Barry Weiss is out with part five of the Twitter files. This latest installation shines light on key correspondence between Twitter employees and executives in the days following January 6th. So let's get into it. According to Weiss's reporting, after January 6th, Twitter employees organized to demand that their employer ban former President Trump. One staffer said, we have to do the right thing and ban this account. Another said, it's pretty obvious he's going to try to thread the needle of incitement without violating the rules. Now, on January 8th, Twitter's safety team unequivocally decided that Trump's tweets on the day of the Capitol breach were not in violation of Twitter policy. Quote, it's a clear no. However, less than 90 minutes after Twitter employees had determined Trump tweets as permissible, Vijaya Gad, Twitter's head of legal policy and trust, asked whether they could in fact be coded incitement for further violence. Members of Twitter's scaled enforcement team then wrote, they quote, view Trump as the leader of a terrorist group responsible for violence, deaths comparable to Christchurch shooter or Hitler. And on that basis and on the totality of his tweets, Thus, quote, he should be deplatformed. After a 30-minute all-staff meeting, Twitter officially announced Trump's suspension, to which Twitter employees responded enthusiastically, one writing, quote, for the longest time Twitter stance was that we aren't the arbiter of truth, which I respected, but never gave me a warm, fuzzy feeling. So this is a pretty uh, substantive uh, release on, in terms of the Twitter files, um, showing how this decision was made. And I, I think, frankly, there's a lot to be quite critical of uh, how these people were, were thinking through these decisions, um, you know, it was not. So this is po this is after the event has taken place, January sixth. January sixth, very bad. I've said it many times. Absolutely, I feel it is correct to hold Trump morally responsible for what happened. He should not be president again because of it. He should have ceased being president in the as it was happening. Or there it, might even be an argument for incitement for other things that well, he said we, that day outside of Twitter. Right. But that's the point. The things he was saying that are really bad and, and should have some consequence for were not things he was saying in Twitter. It right. was things he was saying there right. to the crowd. Right. You can argue that he stoked, that he was giving hyperbolic uh, language. The things he was saying were not true about what had happened to the election. He, he stoked a irate mob that then lost control and, and, and did this. Now, you can also you can point to that he, you know, he didn't say it should be violent. He said it should be peaceful. What, there's perfectly legitimate pushback you can make to that, et cetera. I don't know. I don't think it would be enough, frankly, from my layman's understanding of the First Amendment. I don't think you could actually charge him with inciting a riot, given how robust our free speech protections are under this current Supreme Court. A Supreme Court from 80 years ago, you probably could charge him with, for, for inciting a riot. But all that said, it was the speech the day of to an actual crowd of people. Twitter's getting a little self-obsessed here and thinking it's the tweets are causing the, the like the violence was passed. So right. I don't know what the justification is for shutting him down forever based on what he said on Twitter when the bad thing is what he said to an actual crowd of people. Yeah, I think that's right. And in an article that's actually called <laughs> The Tweets That Got Trump Banned Were Far From His Worst, from Wired, which is like a, a left-leaning organization, you know, they point out that you know, the, the, his last tweets were, okay, the 75,000, uh, sorry, 75 million great American patriots who voted for me, America's first, and make America great again, will have a giant voice long into the future. They will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. That, that kind of thing is going to get you weak. banned. Or, and, and, and I'm not going to the inauguration. Yeah, to all of those who I will not be going to the Very inauguration. Very weak sauce. 
You know, so at the, at the end of the day, this disclosure, what it tells you is that they actually had a process by which mm-hmm. they evaluated whether or not Trump's tweets violated Twitter policy. They said no. It does not violate the mm-hmm. incitement policy. Then there was an, an additional conversation about whether or not, in the broader context of the tweets, et cetera, et cetera, we could just label it as incitement to violence, mark it as incitement to violence anyway, to get the job done. And I, that's a problem. I mean, I can understand the argument. I, like, frankly, I don't disagree with it that there was just a riot because of the, the remarks he was making to a crowd. He has paused on this platform until things cool down. I think that's fine. I, I did not object when they did this on that basis. Saying that because of the it. things he's tweeted, he's permanently, that just doesn't make any sense. The and they're admitting there that it yeah. doesn't make any sense. Yes. That they had to come up with a justification, and that justification is lame. Yeah. So, look, I will say this. I have had mixed feelings about various aspects of the Twitter file disclosures. I think that some of them could have a lot of import. More broadly, for example, mm-hmm. I'm particularly interested in the reporting on shadow banning, which has the same flavor as this, right? Who, what kind of politics, what kind of messaging is Twitter um, is trying to shape uh, with its ability to either highlight, suppress, or ban voices on the app? I think that is really the critical core issue that a lot of people hope that Elon Musk would confront when he got in here. The problem is, so far, the disclosures have not been holistic. So they have kind of found individuals, cherry-picked folks, and revealed that this person got shadow banned and that person got shadow banned. But a lot of leftists are very frustrated, and I hope Matt Taibbi, as someone who has been sympathetic to the left, mm-hmm. starts to be more holistic in terms of what the releases are so it can't be so easily framed as right you know the right mm-hmm. is being targeted when we know that it is, it is across the ideological spectrum people who are not the establishment are being targeted but this disclosure this disclosure unlike some of the others i think because it is narrower is more clearly relevant and, and substantive, as you said. And it'll be interesting to see what the mainstream media does with this and if they continue to do the nothing burger dance. Yeah, they're not covering this at all. Uh, also, one other aspect of this I wanted to touch on. So one of those people saying, like, right, this is akin to, you know, Hitler inciting hatred or something would take action. Honestly, both Twitter and Facebook and, and other content moderators have to deal with a problem of you don't always know, like uh, the Supreme Court of, of Facebook. Facebook has this separate body that can reverse Facebook. The kinds of cases they look at are you know, somewhere in Central Africa or Southeast Asia where there's two ethnic groups or two religious groups that hate each other, and there will be a tweet or there will be a, a piece of content accusing the other group. The other group is kidnapping children and raping them. And should that and, – and now this group is mad. There could be violence because of that piece of content. But – is that piece of content true? Like, the, Facebook mm-hmm. doesn't know. They don't have people there on the ground. It's a, it's a contentious civil war type thing. You know, we're talking in undeveloped parts of the world. And do you leave up a piece of content like that? It's not easy. These are not easy calls. Yeah. Very, you know, people who are experts in civil rights law and human rights law and free speech and, and want to have the thumb on the scales of free speech find these to be difficult calls because they actually don't know the factual, uh, the factual reality of what's going on. And you don't want to silence people who are speaking out against, maybe there is sexual abuse and kidnapping and violence going on, and you're, 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 sen- you're essentially censoring conversation about that. Or maybe it's made up and it's all yeah. lies. Like in Myanmar, where they ended up having violence against the, uh, the native Rohingya Muslim population whipped up by like the generals of the repressive government, uh, that wasn't true. But they, we don't know. Yeah, it strikes it's me tough. that there's there's nothing really new here, right? To your point, people have propagandized against 
the other side and vilify their enemies since time immemorial. What feels different here is that normally there is not a central body that is in control of whether or not that messaging gets seen. And it feels a little bit like a trolley problem, where the issue is that we are now having someone who gets standing at the lever, who decides who gets harmed, but there's no easy way out of this. There's either harm that happens to people's civil liberties and free speech rights, or there is potentially harm that happens as a consequence of of that speech. And I get it. It doesn't give you a warm, fuzzy feeling to sit sit there and say, I'm not going to be the arbiter of truth. But in the absence of an alternative, and I think that they should be working toward alternatives with these boards and just trying to get to Mm -hmm. drill down to the core of of what their responsibilities are. But in the absence of the the alternatives, I don't judge folks for wanting to take a, a step step back and a more hands-off approach, especially if we're not actually approximating those levels of violence, especially if it is the day after one uh, six, mm-hmm. and you know, especially if there's other ways to intervene, like having a more short-term pause and a permanent ban. Yeah, and it sounds like. They knew that, but felt internal pressure from activist employees to reach some other conclusion, and, and then eventually from figures like Vijaya Gad, et cetera, uh, coming to some kind of conclusion that was really actually at odds with what the, 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 the real moderation team was kind of doing. Yeah, I agree. I might call them liberal employees as opposed to activist employees. <laughs> you're an, if I don't like what you're doing, you're an activist. If I like what you're doing, you're an advocate. That's the difference there. Yeah, I'm glad there's a self-awareness there, Ronnie. All right. More rising after this. Registering as an independent and showing up to work with the title of independent is a reflection of who I've always been. And it's a reflection of who Arizona is. It's a reflection of the folks that I talk to at the grocery store, hear from at the park. It's who we are as a people. We don't line up to do what we're told. We do what's right for our state and for our country. That was Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema and her recent announcement that she's leaving the Democratic Party and becoming an independent. In an op-ed for a local Arizona outlet, AZ Central, Cinema wrote, my approach is rare in Washington and has upset partisans in both parties. It is also an approach that has delivered lasting results for Arizona. Like a lot of Arizonans, I have never fit perfectly in either national party. Becoming an independent won't change my work in the Senate. My service to Arizona remains the same. The decision has faced mixed reviews, including from our panelists, who both reacted to it in Newsweek. Jason Nichols, senior lecturer of African-American studies at the University of Maryland, wrote, quote, Kirsten Sinema tells the Democratic Party to go to hell. And Brad Palumbo, opinion journalist and co-founder of Base Politics, wrote, quote, bravo, Kirsten Sinema, you represent millions of Americans who hate both parties. Welcome to you both, Jason and Brad. Hey, good morning. Thank you for having us. Jason, I'll start with you. Uh, what's your beef with Kirsten Cinema over this uh, flip, which I think for all intents and purposes is a, is a branding exercise or a, or a political exercise designed for her to avoid a primary challenge? I, I'm not sure she's actually going to shift her substantive policies uh, at all. Uh, but, but what do you make of this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's exactly it. Now, look, I, I understand what Brad is saying. I'm somebody who uh, has been voting since... 1996, you can see the grays in my beard, and I became a Democrat really in, in 2016, uh, excuse me, 2017, after seeing uh, what happened with Senator Sanders, who I supported, and, and 
uh, after seeing that. I wanted to be able to vote in primary, so I registered as a Democrat. So I, I'm a pretty new Democrat in many ways, even though my ideas haven't changed. So I understand what Brad is saying about people who don't necessarily align completely with either party, but that's not what this is. This is Kirsten Cinema making a power play. She understood what was going on. She understood that she was uh, at about 19% favorability amongst uh, Democratic voters. She understood that she had a primary challenger who won his race and uh, got 77% of the vote in his congressional district and was at 74% approval amongst the Arizona Democrats. She realized that the way she was going to win was to basically hold the party hostage and say, I'll take that 19% with me and run as an independent. And if you run a Democrat against me, we will see Senator Carrie Lake. And she realizes that Democrats can't afford that. The other thing uh, she recognizes is that she'll also take a lot of money with her because she votes, even though she was a former member of the Green Party, she votes to, uh, you know, to end a $15 minimum wage or to not allow for a $15 minimum wage and also uh, to maintain the carried interest loophole so wealthy hedge fund managers don't have to pay taxes. So I think that this was a, a power play. Uh, we understand the motivation for it. Uh, I think it was a smart play, but let's not pretend this is about Arizona. This is Washington insider politics. This is how this kind of thing goes. Well, Brad, you make the, the accurate point that a lot of Americans feel disaffected and like both parties aren't satisfying their needs. But part of why they feel that way is because the party doesn't reflect the interests of the folks. Overwhelmingly, people support a $15 minimum wage, including in red states like uh, Florida, which famously voted 60 percent for a $15 minimum wage, even as it voted for Donald Trump, and on and on and on. So. Even is it how do we why should we see why should we understand what Kirsten Cinema is doing here as anything other than a branding exercise? Well, look, let's just be clear about the fact that she's a pretty reliable center left voter. According to 538, she voted with Biden about 93 percent of the time. Uh, Senator Bernie Sanders voted with him about 91 percent of the time. There's not actually a ton of daylight between their voting records, though. Yes, you're right about a few key issues like a $15 minimum wage. She has gone against her party. Uh, but what I say is I actually think Jason's right. She is telling the Democrats to go to hell, but that's what she should say to them. The Democratic Party has treated her worse than I have seen anyone treated in, in, my, in my recent memory in politics. And that's quite saying something. Pro-Biden, pro-Build Back Better activists illegally harassed her in the bathroom, recording, including a male activist following her into the women's room. And they've harassed her on airplanes. They've written so many horrible things about her. The vitriol directed at this woman for just the tiniest bit of dissent, 7% off from, from voting with Biden in lockstep, uh, to me is just unhinged. So if the Democrats are getting, she's thumbing her nose at them to be sure, but I just think it's no less than they deserve for how they've treated her and good for her. You know, there are more Arizona voters who are unaffiliated than there are Democrats or Republicans. Of course, she's a politician. Some of this is about her own interests in politics. I'm not naive, but it's also I just I don't see any downside to it. The Democrats mm. have treated her terribly. They're very viewed very unfavorably as a party and as an institution. Why shouldn't she go independent? Brad, I have no interest in defending whatever incidents happen in, in bathrooms and things like that. But I do think it it speaks volumes to a lot of working people who are listening to have so much emphasis put on her personal grievances as an individual and have these really 
catastrophic cuts to people's benefits kind of brushed under the rug. Voting against the aspects of Build Back Better that were widely popular, like the child tax credit and the things that weren't able to pass in the human infrastructure bill. Voting down, not just saying, I'm not going to support this $15 minimum wage, but kind of mockingly doing that thumbs down gesture that went around the world. That is a direct impact on a lot of people's lives. We're living in the longest period in American history without a minimum wage raise in the middle of a economic crisis where a lot of working people are struggling. Do you think that they should prioritize that as they look to whether or not Kirsten Cinema is actually going to support their independent interests as working people. Sure, they should evaluate her policy positions, but I'll just say on all the issues you mentioned, and we don't have to get dragged down a rabbit hole, there are good faith arguments to be made on both sides. You and I have talked about the minimum wage, I believe. Uh, and it's not something that's just black and white. The good people all support one thing and the bad people all support other things. She could earnestly believe, like I do and like Robbie does and many others, that a $15 minimum wage would do more harm than good. And it doesn't make her an evil person. It's not just because of her corporate donors. There are donors on every side of the issue. Her voting record is not that different from Bernie Sanders, so I don't think any of us would call a corporate no, shill. No, Brad, her, uh, her voting record... And, and, those percentages are very misleading. And there are ways that we absolutely should not vote along with the Democratic Party, including to fund endless wars and, and these uh, incredible defense budgets like the one we just passed and the Iron Dome and a lot of things. So simply looking at the numbers and saying 91%, 93%, that's the kind of sophistry that people use when they don't want to talk about people's specific records. Or to your first point, Brad, you argue that she is better able to represent the interests of most Americans as most Americans identify as independents. And I think that's true. But you have to look at why most Americans identify as independence. And you can't say, look at this plurality of people who want something different on one hand, and then poo-poo away the plurality of people who have articulated very firmly that whatever you and I think, they want a, a living wage. But I'm going to turn this back to you, Jason, because we haven't had you uh, given you an opportunity to respond to much of this. Yeah, I, th I think one of the things, uh, you know, of course, there, there's the $15 minimum wage, but I'll bring it back uh, to the uh, carried interest loophole. There's literally no argument for keeping that Republicans and Democrats are against the carried interest loophole. And there are many things that we can fund, including things like universal uh, pre-K and other things that would come from closing that loophole, which would produce about $14 billion. And we know why she kept that loophole open and why she demanded it come out of that piece of legislation. Because of the fact that, to, that the uh, uh, investment industry gave her $2 million since 2018. So I, I, I think when we take her for who she is, she's a Washington insider. All that, those images of the beautiful countryside of, of Arizona, that's, that's all kind of, uh, you know, beside the point, the fact that she's playing hardball with the Democratic Party. And it's, you know, it's pure politics. And so, uh, and, I, and I would agree with Bree 100% that those uh, voting records uh, are, you know, when you just go by these clear percentages uh, are very misleading. Uh, when you're holding up major legislation and getting important parts cut out, so then you then vote for it and say, hey, yes, I voted with President Biden, I think isn't, isn't uh, necessarily accurate. But I understand, again, Brad's underlying point about people being disaffected with both parties, I totally understand. And, and I think that that is true. And I think, but I just think making Kirsten Cinema some sort of representative of people who are disaffected with both parties, I think is, is uh, incorrect. Mm. Uh, we have to leave it there. Jason and Brad, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Lots of fun.
We'll have more rising right after this. Outgoing head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Dr. Anthony Fauci, is delivering his last round of interviews before he steps down from his post this month. Here's a bit from the most recent interview. Could we have been less restrictive about schools and less restrictive about closing down the economy and focused, if not from the very start, earlier on, on the elderly? You know, in the absence of vaccination, that would have been very difficult to do. But right now that you have the ability to vaccinate people, you can actually clearly be much more liberal and open in what we're doing, which is where we are really right now. But in the very beginning, when essentially everyone was at risk of infection, you can pass it on to someone else inadvertently, innocently, and have that person suffer a dire consequence. So when you're dealing in the beginning, it was like a tsunami that you needed to shut off quickly and then open up as quickly as you possibly can. CNN's Chris Wallace pressed Fauci further about the inflammatory I am the science remarks he made back in 2021 and criticism that followed. Take a listen. Your critics accuse you of hubris. They say that you express a certainty and a disregard for the views of others. Can you understand when you say I represent science? Sure, I can understand how that could have been taken out of context. And I probably had to do it all over again, would have changed the wording a little bit of that. What I was trying to say, Chris, is that what I was doing was saying, here are the data of why vaccines are safe and effective so we should be getting people vaccinated so when you're criticizing me you're actually criticizing the scientific facts because i'm just the vocal and visible vehicle of the scientific facts that's what i meant when i was saying you're criticizing science fauci who will be 82 on christmas eve already signaled that while he is stepping away from the government He does not plan on retiring. I don't think his greater elaboration on the I am the science comment there is really satisfactory for me or for anyone who thought it was critical Mm. or was critical of it the first time because he he is not just the mouthpiece for the science. He has his own views and his own agenda. And and also science fact, like there, science is a is a process of deliberation and debate and things we thought that were true early on are no longer true. There's, there's more debate over some things, how, how effective various different masks are and were at different stages of the pandemic, whether requiring them has this massive benefit. Same is true for vaccines. Same is true for other mitigation or which mitigation efforts really make a lot of uh, a, a really good intervention. I mean, there was a phase of this pandemic where people were still shamed for just going outside or going to the beach. You were going to die. The Grim Reaper was mm-hmm. following you around at the beach. You remember that? Mm-hmm. Where they were putting padlocks on uh, on parks. parks mm-hmm. Which again, I'm not. I'm not saying Dr. Fauci personally, you know, put those chains up. But uh, but he was an advocate for policies like that. So it's okay to question them. It's not the science doesn't just say we know this for certain. Yeah. You have to shut up if you think differently. All he said was, I am the science with more words right there. <laughs> yes. He said, you know, I am, yeah. I am the mouthpiece for the science. I mean, sir, you know, that's, you know that's not the critique. The critique, to your point, is that there's a diversity of opinion that is out there. Not opinion. There's a diversity of scientific in- conclusions that are evolving as we learn more and that no one person ever could adequately 
you know, funnel all of them, because some of them are contradictory, right? And, and they are, in fact, evolving, which you would have to admit, because the policies have been evolving, and that's fine. Look, the fundamental problem here was the certainty with which all of this information was delivered. And he was a big part of that. Whether another figurehead in his place would have done the mm -hmm. same thing and it was about the position and not the man, fine. Like, I have no personal beef with Anthony Fauci, but it is a little frustrating to hear him still not kind of get the basis of that critique and to not get more pushback when he basically just said, I am the science all of these years later using right. 15 words instead of three. And if, if by the science, he means, you know, national, federal health Officials. I mean, these are the, these are the same people that utterly screwed up the early testing, that shut down tests that might have worked for their own tests that didn't work, uh, and then there was tremendous frustration about that from, uh, if not, I, th I think from Fauci, he wasn't particularly vocal about it, but uh, from his deputy, um, the the lady with the scarves. Uh, remember her? <laughs> lady with the scarves. No, the, with the bandanas. Do you remember her? I can't think of her name right now. Okay. Uh, scarf lady Fauci, Dr. Deborah Burks. Okay. There's her name. Um, <laughs> So, so even if you're like, you don't have to be a, what I'm saying is you don't have to be a crazy COVID contrarian mm -hmm. delusion person, mm -hmm. which I guess I put myself in this category, <laughs> to think that there was something went wrong with the official scientific response and also to have serious concerns and serious questions about uh, what the funding of research, how that might have played into, if not this pandemic, a future pandemic. It seems like there is plenty of legitimate skepticism of things Dr. Fauci has been an advocate of within the scientific community, even among people who would have supported exactly as robust a public policy response to this pandemic as Dr. Fauci did, are still saying these experiments have real risks and real downsides that are not being properly weighed, that people like Dr. Fauci are maybe not fully aware even of what's going on. That's what came through to me in that seven-hour deposition I talked about last week, that he doesn't even quite remember every paper that crossed his desk and what he signed off on, even if these were you know, very controversial uh, research choices being made under under lightly monitored conditions, both domestically and abroad. Well, That's not, not anti-science to say that. You can be, in fact, be pro-science. Yeah, I mean, for, for sure. That. But let me ask you this, Robbie. Are you concerned at all that some of the focus on Dr. Fauci, as opposed to the structural issues at play here, are going to be a problem for folks who want to continue this criticism once Fauci goes away? Yeah. Do you think that there's been an issue where, because he's been made out to be the bad guy kind of singularly, What's the movement going to do? What are the critics? I think, and I'm not trying to be dismissive here. I think there are substantive criticisms that should be leveraged. But if, if he's not kind of the lightning rod for this, what's going to come of everything when he's gone? I mean, he's gone. I think that's going to be a real worry because, frankly, uh, Republicans do not always uh, do a good job of keeping their eyes on the ball. Mm. Um, Trump rails against the deep state for the four years of his presidency, is furious with intelligence officials for spying on him and uh, supposedly listening to his phone calls and uh, you know, the FISA court, all of that stuff. They didn't do a gosh darn thing, <laughs> I could use harsher language, <laughs> to reform that process whatsoever. They did nothing. Mm -hmm. Republicans, supposedly the new right populist MAGA Republicans who hate the deep state and the national intelligence and have learned how it could be weaponized against Trump, so anyone, they still vote to reauthorize all of those. Yeah, they so vote in lockstep to do it, so it's very issue. frustrating. There's so much of this that happens that on both sides of the aisle that's nothing more than grievance politics. Yeah. It's why so many conservatives roll their eyes when a liberal says something about helping marginalized groups, because they don't actually believe they want to help those groups. They're just doing grievance politics. 
oftentimes that's true. And it's why I think a lot of liberals haven't been able to hear some of the substantive criticisms of how the COVID rollout has happened, because it, it does feel in some ways like it's bad faith if it's going to go away the second the Fauci is gone or the second there's a Republican in the White House, et cetera. I mean, we saw it with Donald Trump. Even for Donald Trump, Fauci was his friend and then he wasn't. Mm-hmm. And, and Trump has been struggling with how to talk about the pandemic because he wanted to came, uh, claim credit for getting the vaccines out at the, ti- at the same time that the tide has turned against him with his own audience. So what what is the core value there? What is the core principle there? Are we going to see conservatives continue to be skeptical of the pharmaceutical industry? Are they going to care that the pharmaceutical industry gives so much money to their candidates and exert influence in that way? Are we going to pretend in the same way we have some people have, not us, but some people have with Sam Bakeman fried that because he was publicly giving to Democrats and privately giving to Republicans, that there isn't a big club with none of us in it, and the criticism's going to vanish the second that your guy is in the big seat. Yeah. That is an interesting point that's always worth bringing up. The Trump himself substantially does not agree with the, the hardcore MAGA criticism of all that. He's very supportive of Operation Warp Speed. He's proud of having delivered the vaccines as fast as he did. He said he's gotten vaccinated. He said he's gotten boosted. He's not advocated for vaccine mandates. He said it should absolutely be your choice, but he's said he those he thinks what the good choice is. So it's going to be interesting to see um, how that plays out mm-hmm. as he charts his potential course back to the White House. <laughs> All right, that's it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, we'll be back with all our coverage of the big news of the day. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts, and you can catch us on Roku and other streaming services. Mm, We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.